Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're exploring the innovative ways that not-for-profit providers and payers are joining forces with for-profit entities, including private equity investors, to support their mission and strategic growth objectives. Our article has the title, quote, The Many Flavors of Healthcare's Not-for-Profit, For-Profit Partnerships, close quote. My co-author this month is Stacy Gufanti, a director in the firm's corporate M&A practice and a fellow Colgate alum. Hello, Stacy. Welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. And how about those Raiders? Hi, Dave. It's nice to be here and always good to be talking to another Colgate alum. I hear admissions are really up this year. I think it's because the school's done such a great job on COVID and gotten national press for it, but it could be the hockey team. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure the hockey team has something to do with it. But um, but no, I, I, I agree. I actually think Colgate has uh, been definitely a leader um, as you look at the colleges across the board in terms of how they've dealt with the COVID situation. Yeah, impressive. On to our article, and you and I got to dig into a fascinating topic. Our inspiration was the Kane Brothers Conference in October, where there were several panel discussions on arrangements between nonprofit and for-profit organizations. First, Stacy, let's talk about the big picture. What is it that's driving these new types of not-for-profit and for-profit arrangements? They seem to be happening with greater frequency and greater scale. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it, Dave, it's a really interesting question. As you think about not-for-profits and for-profits, there, there are certainly differences. So there's obviously the difference in tax status, but they also have different governance models that drive decision-making and timing. They have different accounting processes and strategies around capital formation. And more often than not, I think there also is a view that the missions are not aligned between a not-for-profit and a for-profit but at the end of the day, they share a desire for value creation and growth. And it's important to understand that if you're a not-for-profit, but you're not generating any profit margin, then you're really not meeting the mission. And that's what makes not-for-profits and for-profits, in my mind, more aligned than one may think. Yeah, the old adage, uh, no margin, no mission, actually applies to both types of companies. One thing I've always found interesting about Kane Brothers is the firm seems to be agnostic with regard to whether a firm is for-profit or non-profit. It really is trying to look at the business fundamentals and figure out how to drive the greatest value ultimately for customers. You know, partnerships in JVs and healthcare are obviously not new, but we're in a unique position to be able to advise both types of companies on these types of transactions. Part of the reason why I think they're happening more frequently now is driven by the market environment. So valuations for assets are soaring. Uh, even in a COVID world, we're seeing people looking through the impact from COVID and focusing more on long-term value and multiples are staying strong. The market for acquisitions and consolidations has become costly and competitive. 
And then health systems and insurers, they're striving to improve outcomes and control costs. For not-for-profits, even if they have the right playbook in terms of wanting to build scale, becoming more competitive and pursuing growth, there's often a capital constraint. And so combining forces with for-profit entities can help them achieve their financial goals and ultimately their mission. Well, that was a terrific explanation of what some of the driving forces are. And it is really interesting. So let's put some skin on the bones here and dig into our case studies. The first that we looked into was Welsh Carson, the huge PE firm's investment in CareSource, an Ohio-based regional health insurance company. Stacy, uh, why don't we start by having you tell us something about CareSource? CareSource is a mission-based, not-for-profit health plan. It's been a national leader in Medicaid managed care and other government programs for over 30 years. It serves over 2 million Medicaid and other government program beneficiaries in Ohio, Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia, and it's by far the largest Medicaid plan in Ohio. The company is led by its CEO, Earhart Prytower, and Earhart and the board really understood how important growth and scale is for the company, but they needed access to outside capital to achieve this growth. And with our help, they partnered with Welsh Carson, Anderson, and Stowe last Stacey, summer. Stacy, what was Welsh Carson's motivation for this transaction? From Welsh Carson's perspective, you know, they really saw an opportunity here to invest in a Medicaid managed care organization that was a not-for-profit. And I think that there's real advantages to being a not-for-profit in the Medicaid space. There are states that prefer working with not-for-profits, and CareSource is one of only a small few that have the size and the scale that they do. So how does the for-profit element of the investment one, structurally take place, and then two, practically, how do the returns uh, spin off to the various parties as, as growth occurs? Yeah, so as part of this transaction, CareSource formed a for-profit management services organization, and Welsh Carson committed equity capital to that MSO, which is owned by the not-for-profit. I wouldn't say that's unique in healthcare, particularly as you look at physician groups, which tend to use an MSO structure fairly frequently. But it is rare for a not-for-profit in the managed care sector to form a for-profit MSO for which it's not the sole owner. And in, in this deal, Welsh Carson will be a minority equity holder and CareSource will be the majority holder. The reason why this structure is, is important is because it did not require CareSource to convert to for-profit status or diverge away from its long-held mission orientation. And really, the MSO, like you said, is a vehicle to help the health plan grow its government programs. Yeah, pretty remarkable that Welsh Carson's willing to take a minority position speaks to the trust that must exist between the leaderships of the two organizations and the working relationship they're developing. Yeah, I think the relationship piece here is really important. And I think as you look at some of the other case studies that we're going to talk about today, the relationship pieces is probably one of the most important things in these partnerships. And the relationships are not built in months. They're built over over years. And Welsh Carson has a strong track record of, of doing partnerships like this and working with not-for-profits. In the past, they invested in, in Innovage, a national pace provider that was a not-for-profit 
that converted to for-profit. And they also recently did the the JV with Humana around partners in, in primary right. care. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges when you're going out and trying to do a JV is who is the right partner and what do they bring to the table. Yeah, uh, everybody's learning some new dance steps here and the transactions are complex. Uh, let's listen to a clip from CareSource CEO Erhard Freitauer when you asked him about how the company was dealing with the complexity. I guess this question is more directed to Erhard. As a not-for-profit, what were the key goals and requirements for any partnership? It's really understanding how important our mission is to us and understanding how that impacts how we look at our members, how we make our decisions, the time horizons, the legacy of the company. Um, and so, again, having the perfect partner, Tom Walsh Carson, was incredibly important uh, for us. In fact, it was it was critical. It was not something that we, we could overcome. And, you know, there was a lot of technical elements under that as well in terms of the deal and the structure and lots of questions around control and, and how money moved around and, and a lot of that type of stuff that we had to sort of work through. But the biggest piece is really just understanding the business and understanding the mission and um, understanding why that's a valuable thing as we go out and, and get beyond the states that we're in today. I think you're right, Stacy. That's something we see in all of these partnerships is this clear desire to drive better performance and create value, grow in the right way. So why don't we go next to some JVs between large not-for-profit health systems, Fairview and Trinity Health, and for-profit post-acute care companies. What can you tell us about these transactions? So Accent Care partnered with the not-for-profit health system Fairview Health. Accent Care is a national leader in the post-acute space and provides home health and, and hospice services. And then the second transaction is Premier Health. So they formed a JV with the not-for-profit health system Mercy One. And Premier Health is a national urgent care provider, and it's really one of the, the pioneers of the JV urgent care model. Yeah, I, I think a good way to look at this is thinking of, of Fairview and Trinity, the two big health systems here, and Mercy One is a component of Trinity, as really bundles of capabilities. And there's just no way either organization is going to start from scratch and build a post-acute care business line equivalent to either what Accent Care or Premier Health is doing. So by bundling those post-acute services into the overall service lines for these big health systems, they get the benefit of an experienced player working seamlessly within their platform, uniform electronic medical records, reasonable allocation of resources, so on and so forth. And that, again, overall complex, but at the end of the day, they do it because it drives better overall outcomes at, at lower costs with better customer experience. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that health systems today are motivated by a growing need to manage quality and cost at every step of the care delivery process. And so being able to partner where the partner can bring in an expertise that, that you don't have makes a lot of sense as you think about 
the overall outcomes that you're trying to achieve. I also think that doing a JV arrangement enables the health systems to just deploy capital more strategically and, and more efficiently um, is, is another you know, reason uh, for, for doing these sorts of arrangements. And I guess the great thing is that if you're a customer of Fairview or Trinity, you don't really care that Accent Care or Premier Health is running the post-acute component of it. Yeah, and I think that what's really important is that these partnerships are extremely important for how the health systems really connect with their communities. Yeah, well, we've got a clip here of your colleague Dave Morlock interviewing Sherry Shapiro, the Chief Strategy Officer at Trinity, and Sherry does a great job of putting this in, into context. Let's listen. So Sherry, what are the motivations at Trinity with the leadership group, et cetera, around exploring partnerships in these non-acute areas? Yeah, I find it really interesting that the name of this panel is talking about ancillary business lines, because I would say for us, as we've worked through our strategy and our vision going forward, um, we really find a lot of these partnerships are core. We wouldn't call them ancillary business lines. However, we recognize that we may not have all those capabilities or expertise internally. And so in order to continue to have them as core to our business, we want to find like-minded and culturally aligned partners that can bring that expertise and we can go to market together to provide those services for the people we serve. Wow, spoken like a chief strategy officer. Hey, Stacy. before we go to our last case study, why don't you just give us your thoughts on what are the keys for success for these types of for-profit, not-for-profit arrangements? I think that the biggest thing that makes these arrangements successful is, is culture alignment. I'd also say governance is, is critical. There's oftentimes real issues that, that need to be worked through. And I think trying to figure out what some of the showstoppers are early on is important. Um, and then also just being as transparent as you can throughout the process just makes it go a little bit smoother. And then I think you need the right incentives in the deal to make sure that you truly you know, have a partner. And then the last thing I'd say is, is just a similar values and a similar mission-oriented thinking. For our last case study, Stacy, we looked at the arrangement between Brown and Tolan, a very successful physician group based in San Francisco, and Alteus, an independent subsidiary of the not-for-profit Blue Shield of California. Alteus is a health services company that provides physician groups with tools, technology, and support services. What can you tell us about this transaction? So the Brown and Tolan transaction with Alteus is a really good example of what we're seeing happening right now between providers and payers. So we're seeing you know, major health insurance companies getting into the business of owning primary care practices. So payers believe that disruptive primary care can really reduce healthcare costs and, and provide better patient outcomes. The Brown and Tolan deal hits on a lot of these themes. Brown and Tolan has a strong history of, of being physician-led. Most physicians are, are under contract. They've had an MSO structure to provide administrative and practice support. And Alteus is a technology and physician services company created to deliver next-generation level support for physicians. So Brown and Tolan physicians will get more tools, more processes to help them deliver care. 
and Brown and Tolan will also get the funding and the support they need to grow their footprint statewide. So the, the way to think about it, I think, is Brown and Tolan is, is already a high-performing physician organization, and the capital and technology that Alteus provides should allow them to go to this next level of, of performance. We now have an audio clip from Brown and Tolan CEO Kelly Robinson talking about how the organization will assess the long-term success of this partnership arrangement with Alteus. Let's take a listen. I think the short answer for me, and Jeff and I talk about this a lot, we use the word expectations. We expect in five years, not we hope or we're working towards, but we expect physician gratification, healthcare outcomes, and patient satisfaction to be significantly higher five years from now than it is today. That's our goal and mission, and what that's how we will measure whether this, this partnership has succeeded. How we get there is equally important. We've covered a lot of ground, Stacy. We've looked at different types of transactions. We've seen how important cultural alignment and governance are, shared vision, supporting mission and strategy, financial alignment, incentives. Ultimately, though, these arrangements will succeed or fail, really just like Kelly Robeson suggested. Are they able to deliver better outcomes at lower cost with better customer service? Thanks for walking us through this, but I can't let you go before I ask for one bold prediction for 2021 or beyond. What's going to happen in healthcare that, that will knock everybody's socks off? Dave, I, I guess what I'd say is my bold prediction is that we're going to see a significant acceleration in the consumerization of healthcare over the next couple of years. We've been talking about consumerization of healthcare for a while now, so that's not new. However, we've all been living in, in this COVID pandemic for the last year, and one big implication I think it has on everybody is it's forced people to really think about their health and the healthcare system. And consumers, especially the millennial generation, are going to be demanding better experiences in healthcare. Companies that target the consumer and put them front and center will be the winners. That's a great prediction. I think the marketplace is making a huge bet on just what you're saying, that, that consumer-led healthcare will be a driving force in reshaping the marketplace environment. And I don't think healthcare will go back to the pre-COVID way of doing things. Thank you, Stacy, for this great discussion. I encourage our listeners to read the article Stacy and I wrote, The Many Flavors of Healthcare's Not-for-Profit, For-Profit Partnerships. If they'd like to learn more, you'll definitely learn more and you'll be dangerous at your next Zoom cocktail party. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, more accessible, and affordable for all. Thanks so much, Dave.